I want to talk with you more about what God says about sin. And I want to talk with you about that because we have Lent coming up in a few days and because we have been talking about the nature of Christian confession. In fact, this whole series is entitled On Christian Confession. And so far we have learned that to confess our sins means to say the same thing as God says about sin. So it seemed proper that we go ahead and do some work on ensuring that we say the same thing as God says about sin. And to do that, we began to look deeper in the letter of 1 John, just to see what the inspired text says about sin, because that is, of course, the very word of God to us about sin, at least as far as this one letter is concerned. We simply don't have the time to take a full, exhaustive study of the whole Bible about what God says about sin. But nonetheless, I think in 1 John, we get a good picture of what God says about sin so that we can be better assured that when we confess our sins, what we understand that to mean is that we have a 24-7 settled disposition and mindset about the nature and reality of sin. It isn't anything that we've come close to understanding in the past, is it? Because we have often thought of confessing sins as being going to the confessional or going to the Sunday night altar call or uh, even sitting when our quiet time in the morning and confessing particular known sins. But we discovered, wonder above wonders, that in 1 John 1, 5 through 10, is a series of descriptive verses, not prescriptive. In other words, John is setting forth in 1 John 1, 5 through 10, the contrast between the Gnostic, the false teachers who denied sin, and how it is the true believer, the apostolic believer, uh, deals with sin. And we don't deny sin nor do we go all morbidly introspective about sin. Rather, as children of God, in fellowship, in permanent, unbreakable, unconditional fellowship with the Father and the Son, we say the same thing that God says about sin. Our mind and our will have been, by grace, turned back toward the divine mind and the divine will so that now we, as children of God, say the same thing uh, that our Heavenly Father says about the nature and reality of sin. And so, once again, what we want to do now, we want to be certain that we are, in fact, saying the same thing that God says about sin. These days, we're living in a uh, post-modern culture, a a, um, pluralistic culture, and, and there's a lot of cultural dismissal of sins, even within the church culture. It's, sins are kind of played down, pushed aside. Uh, and so we want to be careful that we're not buying into that. We always want to have the same mind and the same uh, attitude about sin and say the same thing that our Heavenly Father does. Now, we've already begun doing that in the first episode on this uh, topic of saying the same thing that God says about sin. In 1 John 2, 1 through 2, I think that episode was called, if I can recall, at the top of my head, uh, that you may not sin. 
and it had to do with 1 John 2, 1 through 2, in which John is writing, in order that we may not sin, he says. I, little children, again, it's a reference to how elementary this teaching is. This is Christianity 101. The Gnostics, the false prophets, were always big into in going deep and going to the secret things of God and to the secret spiritual ascendancies. And John's saying to us instead, no, no, let's just talk about the elementary things. And so he refers to us as little children, my little children. This is Christian doctrine that little children ought to be able to understand. I am writing these things to you, he says, so that you may not sin. And we learned that that is a profound thing in itself, isn't it? Because when we were in sin, when we were in Adam, that's all we did was sin. We were slaves to sin, albeit willing slaves to sin. So for John to say he is writing to us <clears throat> about the most elementary doctrine of Christian faith, about sin, saying that we now are a people who do not have to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, Romans 6, 16, 17, and 18. We are slaves to righteousness. Under the new covenant, God has written his law in our hearts and on our minds. He has placed his spirit within us and caused us to keep his ways and to keep his decrees. We are now children of God, no longer children of the devil. And we want to not sin. We no longer not only not want to not sin, we want to do what pleases God. So we have this ability now, this miraculous ability by the miracle of regeneration by the Spirit to not sin. So John can boldly write, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then he gives us this gracious concession. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So John is saying clearly that we, may, we, we don't have to sin. It is never God's will to sin. And then the apostle gives this gracious concession that we will. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now the, the word the, the article there, is not in the Greek. It's just Jesus Christ righteous. His name is synonymous with righteousness. So if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is a satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Note that John includes himself in there. He doesn't say, and he himself is the propitiation or satisfaction for your sins, as would a ordained priest and not for yours only. He's saying ours. John includes himself in on this. So as to keep the focus on Jesus Christ and not himself as the only advocate. And he himself is the, Jesus is the satisfaction for our sins. So what if we sin? What does God say about that? First of all, he says we are not we don't have to sin. He's freed us from the power of sin. We don't have to sin. And yet, God understands that we will. And so he's made every provision for that 
in his son. Not just for our sins up until baptism, but sins thereafter. We, the prescription is here. God says, when you sin, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon your advocate. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, the righteous, and not upon yourself. Now, this is very timely because Lent is beginning in a couple of days. A time which I really want to urge you to reconsider if you practice this. Is this part of your tradition? Please reconsider. Because for the first 300 years, the church didn't even practice Lent. It wasn't even in their, on their radar as part of their spiritual practices. And in my judgment, Lent is some kind of a, a pagan incorporation in the church that does one thing, and that is it turns your eyes off of Jesus and back on yourself. And the average person who practices Lent thinks that somehow by giving up cake or giving up movies or giving up coffee or giving up something, uh, some kind of self-deprivation, that they are, they are somehow improving their own spirituality. That's an old pagan view of spirituality. Now, there's nothing wrong with spiritual disciplines. But if you really want to exercise a spiritual discipline for the 40 days leading up to Easter, I'd encourage you to practice the one that the Bible is describing here. I'd encourage you to say what God says and turn your eyes upon Jesus and not upon yourself. Turn your eyes upon him as a satisfaction for our sins and not upon you by your little pathetic giving up of items or this or sweets or chocolate or, or coffee or, or movies or some kind of uh, ridiculous self-deprivation thinking that somehow you draw nearer to God because of that or that by some kind of self-deprivation that you are increasing your spiritual life it's the, everything that John is saying not to do here folks listen I'll be honest with you, some of the most depraved, some of the most foul people I know observe Lent. They worship God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. It's just like we learned about confessing sins. You can go to liturgy every week and confess your sins through the reciting of the, of the liturgy and get the priestly absolution and still have your heart far from God. But what you can't do is be a person who actually says the same thing that God says about sin as a settled predisposition, a genuine, heartfelt, 24-7 uh, view of sin, and do that. So, John's saying to turn your eyes to Jesus. It is God's, what God is saying here to you today, that you are to say along with him. Let us say the same thing that God says. And he says that when we sin, we are to turn our eyes to Jesus and to him alone, our only advocate, the only righteous one, and the only satisfaction for our sins. Well, let's look at another one here, and that would be 1 John 2, 12. 
1 John 2.12. What does God say about sin here? Well, 1 John 2.12, he says this, again, using that language, I am writing to you, little children. Again, this is elementary. He's not condescending here. He's not calling adults little children. What he's saying is, again, this is very elementary teaching. This is teaching that even a little child should be able to understand. And that is, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, John is saying this within the context of spiritual development. In verses 13 and 14, he goes on to describe uh, spiritual adolescence and then ultimately spiritual fatherhood or spiritual adulthood. So spiritual infancy, spiritual adolescence, and spiritual adulthood. And so it's absolutely critical to your spiritual development so that you may mature. You may go into spiritual adolescence. If you're new in Christ, the path to spiritual development begins by you understanding that your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Not because you kept Lent, but because of his namesake. Because of what he's accomplished in his son. Now, here's the better, even better news. When he says your sins are forgiven you for his namesake, that's past, present, and future. Let me just remind you that this whole study began on Christian confession based upon Hebrews chapter 10, verses 14 and 17. He says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So it's critical to understand the full scope and nature of the atonement as being complete, as being finished as being all-sufficient. Nothing you can give up for Lent is going to cause you have any ground for drawing near to God any more than what God has already accomplished in His Son. Now, I realize that there are those who are sin-haunted, meaning the sins of their past, even after they came into Christ, still dogged their conscience, and perhaps sins they've committed since they've been in Christ are dogging their conscience. This is a tragic state, and it comes about all too often as a result of focusing upon the self instead of Christ in his all-sufficient atonement. This is why I'm begging you to reconsider your practice of Lent. Lent does nothing but turn your eyes off of Jesus and back onto yourself. Now, if you really want to practice Lent, if you really want to exercise the spiritual discipline, I'll say it again, let it be a time in which you focus your eyes on Christ. Go ahead and have your coffee. Go ahead and eat your cake. <laughs> go ahead and go to a movie. Or whatever else you thought you were going to deprive yourself of for the next 40 days. But turn your eyes upon Jesus. Focus your eyes. In fact, make it a 40-day spiritual discipline not to look to yourself regarding sin, but to Christ and his full, sufficient satisfaction for your sins. Not acts of penance, 
not self-loathing, not rituals, not sacraments, sacraments, not holidays or seasons, but upon Christ and Christ alone. So, <clears throat> listen, God knew you. God called you. And he justifies you while you were yet making yourself his enemy. He knew every sin you've ever committed then, and he knows every sin you've ever committed since your baptism. And listen to me clearly now. Yes, even those that we prefer to no one ever sin, sin's always destructive. Those in the future as well. Christ's atonement paid for even those sins you have yet to commit. So be free of the notion that sinless perfection is life possible in this life. But lean into Christ's atoning work. And know it is not a partial work. He did not forgive only those sins before conversion. But all those sins and those yet to come. His work on your behalf, beloved, is a complete atonement. And the best amendment of life, if you wish to do so, is to now walk in the Spirit-empowered holiness to which he's called you, hereafter. After all, remember, you are under obligation no longer to the flesh, Romans 8, 1-17, but to walk in the Spirit. And if you really want a spiritual discipline during this Lenten season, if you have to practice it, I'd encourage you not to practice it at all, but if you have to practice it, let your spiritual discipline be focusing upon Christ and his sufficiency for sin. That's, God's, that's what God says. If we really want to confess our sins, remember, we want to bring our thoughts and our attitude and our settled disposition about the nature and reality of sin into line with what God says about sin. And what God says about sin is look to his Son. Look to his son and know that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Well, may the Lord bless you and continue to strengthen you. Next time when we're together, we'll talk more. There's two more other points about what God says about sin that we can find in 1 John. And we'll talk about those then. And then we'll go on to talk about what it means to confess Jesus. Because that same word... Remember, the word confess is translated for the Greek word homologeo, to say the same thing as God says. And what a timely study that will be, because we'll be talking about what God says about his son. And for us to confess Jesus, it's not just to say, hey, I'm a Christian, or to say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but to say the same thing as the Father says about his beloved son. It'll be an exciting study. Well, may the Lord strengthen you and keep you in his grace always. Until we talk again. Amen.